welcome to Me, Myself, and Millie, a podcast that gives light and levity to infertility and different pathways to parenthood. I'm your host, Millie Brooks. Welcome, everyone, to episode 67. We are going to interview Alex Cornsweet, who's on Instagram under When Everybody Matters, all about working with and finding a surrogate through an agency. Alex is an amazing infertility warrior, advocate, and author. Her new book titled How to Help Friends and Family Through Infertility is out. We recorded the episode back in November of 2020, but since it's January 2021, the book is available for purchase and you can officially get your own copy. Mostly our combo is about her journey with using a surrogate, but we also chit-chat about her book. So stay tuned. If you are a loyal fan of me, myself, and Millie and want to show your love and support, please go on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating and a small review. Your voice carries so much weight, and those listener reviews really help drive more traffic to the podcast. So thanks in advance for doing that. Okay, here's our guest. Alex, it's so wonderful to virtually meet you and have a chit chat with you. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on here. Yes. How how are your COVID days going right now? Um, they are good overall. We are still staying safe and not really seeing anyone or going anywhere. But um, yeah, just trying to fill our days at home overall. How about you? Yes, we are just trying to keep ourselves busy in this small little box of a house that we have. Um, we're trying to, we're still trying to figure out what the holidays look like. It's, you know, it's, it seems like we, we're very fortunate to live in California, so we can do a lot of outdoor gatherings still. Um, but it's a crapshoot. The holidays are going to be so different this year. Yes, I agree. I think we will be mainly staying to ourselves, but overall, it's going to be very different. <laughs> yes. Well, let's, um, I mean, let's start with before um, hearing about your fertility journey, tell us who you are, where you live, and what you do outside of being an amazing infertility advocate. Um, well, thank you so much for saying that. Um, I'm really excited. So my so I live in Southern California, and my husband and I have we've actually lived in California, Massachusetts, Washington. Um, we actually lived in Hong Kong for a summer as well. Um, but Southern California has always been home. We're both from here. We went to high school here. We're high school sweethearts. <laughs> and so we've always been, this has always been our home. Um, my daily life is basically just being a mom to our son. We had, we have a son that's from IVF in 2016, who was born in 2017. Um, and so I've, I'm, I was working part-time until COVID started, but now I'm just home 24-7. Um, my background is in pastry and baking, so I do that at home a lot for fun. Um, but otherwise, just 
taking care of my son and trying to fill his days while we can't really go anywhere. (laughs) Yes, yes. Well, give us a snapshot of your journey. Yeah, so it's a long story, so I'll just do the short version. Um, But we started trying in 2015. So we got married in 2012, started trying in 2015. And after about six months, I knew something was off. So we basically got into the fertility clinic as soon as we could. And I found out that my fallopian tubes are blocked. And so we were told that IVF was our only option if we wanted to have a biological child. Um, We were really lucky and our first round of IVF worked and gave us our son in 2017. Um, We did know that it might not be so easy the second time around. And so when he was about seven or eight months old, we decided to start seeing a fertility clinic again. Um, We didn't really know how long it was going to end up being and how hard that would be. Um, Over the past three years, we've seen three more fertility doctors. I've had multiple surgeries to correct issues. Um, And then in that time, we've had two cycles canceled due to thin lining. We've had two failed transfers. And then we've had two miscarriages as well. And after all of that loss and hardship, we were finally told that surrogacy was our only option. Um, if we wanted to have another biological child because we had embryos, which we're very grateful for. And so about a year ago, we matched with our surrogate and now he, our second boy is due in eight weeks. Oh my gosh. Wow. We're very excited. We just had, yesterday was 32 weeks. So we're very, very excited and anxious to have him in our arms. (laughs) What led you to use a surrogacy agency um, instead of going the private family friend route? So for us, our doctor, our fertility doctor that we trust and that we wanted her to use or a surrogate to use um, mandates that a surrogate has had a healthy pregnancy and a child before. Um, And so anyone that we knew either hadn't had any children yet or weren't done having their own children. And so they, there wasn't really any options or they were like past the age where they would have children again. And so an agency was really our only option. Um, it is legal in California. And so the route was a lot easier for us than it might be if you're in another state or country, because I know it's a lot harder to do other places. Um, but yeah, so that's, it was kind of the main option for us. And um, give us a picture of what the agency looks like and what happened at that initial visit. Yeah, so we we did a lot of research to find a good agency. We got some recommendations from our fertility doctor. We got a recommendation from a lawyer for a fertility lawyer or a surrogacy lawyer, and then he gave us recommendations. But it all kind of ended up where everybody was recommending the same main agency. And my tell was I would email a bunch of agencies. And then if people responded quickly and seemed to actually really listen to my questions right off the bat, I felt like I could trust them. And so our initial meeting was in person with the owner of the surrogacy agency. Luckily, we could actually go in person at that time. It was a year ago and she works out of her house and it's about 20 minutes away from us. So we got lucky with that. Um, But the meeting was about two hours long. So it was a really long, very in-depth meeting. 
Um, and she basically just went over how the entire journey would look like from start to finish. And it just gave us a lot of peace of mind of, okay, this will help us figure out what we want to do. And so she, we actually met with her a few months before we actually decided to go with surrogacy, but it was just very helpful because she walked us through everything that we could expect, which was great. And wow, two hours. Yeah. That must have been a doozy of a meeting. What types of things were covered yeah. in that meeting? So it, we, I mean, by the end, we were definitely ready to, we were kind of overwhelmed and ready to go. Um, but she she just covered every single thing, talked about um, that we would have to sign up with them first, how long it would take to match, which they say is about three to six months usually just to match with a surrogate then what would happen once we matched, what kind of meetings we would have, um, the medical clearance that she would need, the legal clearance that we would need, what kind of lawyer we would need and she would need, um, just everything. And then that's all even before the transfer happens. So then she talked about what the transfer would look like, what the pregnancy would look like, what the birth would look like, and afterwards. And honestly, it, it ended up being pretty different because COVID has impacted a lot of it. But overall, it was just really helpful to hear what to expect from really from start to finish. And what happened after that meeting? So we had had that meeting with her in May of 20... Gosh, now my years are all getting mixed up. 2019. And we decided to do one last transfer with me in August of 2019 or September of 2019. Um, Unfortunately, that ended in our second miscarriage. And at that point, we had decided there was no way my body was going to do this again. And we were just, we really needed to move on to surrogacy. So we had actually prepared everything we needed in case we needed to go that route. Because in infertility, you always kind of have to be ready for bad outcomes, as sad as that sounds. Um, And so we were prepared for it. And so we just signed up because we knew it could take three to six months to match. Um, We actually got matched with our surrogate in three weeks, which is super fast. And so that also made us just feel like this had to be the right decision and the right path. Three weeks. Wow. Yeah. It, that was a hot match. Yeah. So we were we were very grateful for that. So they said there wasn't a lot of intended parents, which are what we are called, and there were more surrogates. So they were able to match us much more quickly than normal. And how would you describe your relationship with your surrogate? So our surrogate is, I mean, I think you have to be a wonderful person to do something like that for other people. Um, she's an incredible person. Our I think when we started it, we part of the matching is you say what type of relationship you hope to have. And we both wanted to be close and get to know each other. COVID has made that significantly more complicated because we're not allowed to go to any doctor's appointments. We're not, you know, it's really difficult to see her because we want to make sure she's staying safe and just give her as much space as possible. I have met up with her a little bit at local parks to between us. And then a lot of times during the appointments, I'll just 
stop by outside to wave and say hi quickly. Um, overall though, we're very open with each other. We text really regularly. Um, I think it's really nice. She, she, it, I think she feels like she can tell me how she's feeling and everything, which I really appreciate. And I feel like we just trust each other. We obviously trust her because she's carrying our child. Um, but yeah, I think we, we have a good relationship and I think even with COVID we've still managed to make a strong relationship through this. And describe a little bit of how the relationship has evolved since she got pregnant. Like what does doc, what do doctor visits look like? All of that. Yeah. So we can't go to the doctor's visits. Um, but she overall, since she's gotten pregnant, so she was at our fertility clinic until 12 weeks. So we haven't been able to go. She actually had the transfer. She started medications for the transfer cycle the week that COVID shut everything down. So we haven't been to anything starting with the transfer and anything else. And so it is nice though, because in terms of doctor's appointments, she will take videos or photos for us and she always sends them right after. And so she's helping us make us feel like we're there as much as possible. And then in the bigger appointments, the bigger ultrasound appointments, we've done FaceTime. So we've been able to live see what's going on on the ultrasound. So she's definitely trying as much as she can to involve us with doctor's appointments, even though we technically can't be there. So that's nice. And so, and now, I mean, you are eight weeks mm -hmm. um, away from the due, is it the due, the date, due date or? Yeah, the due date's in eight weeks. So likely possibly before too. We're not sure. Okay. And so what does the relationship look like when she goes into the hospital? Like, do you guys create a birth plan together? Describe that for us. Yeah. So um, this is also more complicated right now because they're limiting the number of people in hospitals overall. And so really we have to wait until we get closer um, to when she gives birth to find out exactly what's going to happen. Ideally, my husband and I would both like to be in the room when the baby's born. And she also will have us, our surrogate will also have a support person with her, likely her husband. Um, but we really don't know. Right now, they said that the surrogate, our surrogate will have a support person, and then we will have one of us allowed in the delivery room. And I think that's just to limit the people in there to just for healthcare restrictions right now. But we're going to be checking in with the nurses at the hospital and with our agency as it gets closer just to see if both of us could be there while he's born. Um, I think at the if for some reason we both can't be in the delivery room, we're going to a hospital that's very surrogacy friendly on purpose. Um, and so they will likely have her recover in one room and then have me move in to a recovery room with the baby. And then my husband would be able to meet me there. So he should still be able to come to the hospital right after the baby's born, even if he can't technically be in the delivery room. Um, but again, we're just, I think we're going to find out more as it gets closer. I think my plan is to call in the beginning of December when she's about 36 weeks to figure out <laughs> what the plan will be. 
Yeah, I'd be calling them every day. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, please, please give me a play-by-play yeah. of like the protocols today. Yeah, I think because everything, as we know, just COVID rules have changed so much and they loosen up and then they have to tighten them again. And so I think that we figured we aren't going to stress ourselves ourselves out too much about it until we get closer where we might get a realistic answer. So I think we're planning on calling when it's within the window that's he could realistically be born and then find out what the plan is. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And you know it's a little boy? Yeah, we know it's a boy. Yeah. Um, so question about some of the nitty gritty details here in terms of like a birth plan, which we all know eventually just goes out the window. Um, but it's nice to have a plan. Like how much of that gets decided between the two of you, or do you just yield to whatever she wants to do? Talk to to me about that. That's a good question. Um, honestly, when I had my son, I did not have a much of a birth plan. <laughs> so I'm not really a, I, I am a planner in every other aspect. I think I just know that when it comes to this, you just can't know exactly how it's going to go. Overall, we yield to her. She, she has two daughters and she was able to have them um, vaginally, like naturally. And so not having a seat. So she's never had to have a C-section. So ideally she would go into labor naturally and have him naturally. But I think that we just play it by ear. And if anything else has to happen when we're there, then just whatever to keep the baby safe and to keep her safe is, I think we both have decided that we'll just trust the doctor's decisions on that. Um, but overall it's definitely like, you know, if they, for example, I needed a little bit of extra oxygen. If she needed that, like that's her decision because it's her body and it's her that's giving birth. And so really I will be there to support her and to await the delivery, but those decisions will be hers. Got it. Got it. So you don't get kind of into the weeds about like, oh, I want it to be a natural birth. Like there's a lot of, there's a lot of just, you know, letting what needs to happen and letting her make that decision. Yeah. I'm not sure if every intended parents feel the same way. I think that we're able to have kind of a unique relationship because I was able to carry my first son myself. And so I know that I'm extremely lucky for that. And so I do know what pregnancy and birth feels like. And so she knows that I really do know what she's experiencing right now. And so I think that helps with our relationship as well. Um, but overall, I, I, one time she actually asked me if I used an epidural and I said, yes. And she said, Oh, thank God. (laughs) She wanted to use one, but she wasn't sure if we were comfortable with it, but I would never tell her what to use or what not to use because I want her to have the most relaxing. That's impossible, but you know, I want her to be as relaxed and as comfortable as possible just so that the birth goes as smoothly as it can. Oh, I'm so I, I like as soon as you said that, I had a massive sigh of relief <laughs> because I was like, oh, I'm so well, one, I'm glad you brought up the epidural conversation. And two, that's so lovely that you guys were both on the same page. Yes, it was very nice. And I just know, like if she didn't want to have an epidural, that would be her choice. I 
I personally recommend it and she used it for her girl. So she'll definitely be using it again. But I think it's with everything like that, we're obviously not going to ask her to be in more pain than she needs to be unnecessarily. So it's already a really, it's already going to be something completely unique and new for her as well. And so, cause she's never been a surrogate before. So that's, you know, we just want her to be as comfortable as she can. What was the most surprising thing throughout the process of looking for a surrogate and then eventually working with one? Um, So for me, I think overall, one of the most surprising aspects was how I felt at my fertility clinic and with my agency after we had matched and started using our surrogate because I had originally... I don't like I had been the patient for so long that it felt very strange to all of a sudden just be more of a bystander, even though we were already still talking about our child. And obviously the focus needs to be on the surrogate. I want it to be, but it's just very strange to go from being the patient to just being another person in the room and now not being in the room at all. And I talked to my husband about this and he said, that's how he's always felt. And so now I realize that my husband and I are actually really experiencing this pregnancy in the same way, which is very unique as well. Wow. Wow. And, um, what was the most frustrating thing? Um, I think in the very beginning I got frustrated that you know, when I was standing, when I was able to go appointment to appointments, I had to get used to not being the patient. So I got frustrated about that because my fertility, it was the same fertility doctor. And all of a sudden I was just another person in the room, which felt really weird to me because I I thought I wanted him to acknowledge me a little bit more, even though it's really silly, but I kind of realized that that obviously wasn't the focus anymore. And I was fine not being the patient. Um, But yeah, it just, it felt very strange because it's still our child. Um, And then I think overall it's, it's been frustrating to not be able to go to appointments at all. Cause at some point we thought that we were going to start going and then things tightened up again and then we couldn't go. So, I mean, really at the end of the day, we've been waiting so long for this baby that we really just want to make sure he's healthy and it's not, you know, It would have been like icing on the cake to go to appointments, but it doesn't change how he's growing. So we're just grateful that he's doing well. And we just like getting all the videos and photos. Um, this is, this is just fascinating. I mean, it makes so much sense to me because you, you do feel like all eyes are on you when you're at the fertility clinic and that's even it, with my husband and I's situation where male factor infertility was our main diagnosis, like it still was all eyes on me, you know? Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. Cause you're it, the one that they're trying to get pregnant. So yes! yeah, <laughs> it's like the only person they care about. So yes. And, and so there is an element of like, wow, you really got to, um, understand firsthand what it is like to be the partner. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think one of the most fascinating parts of this, because I didn't even realize that that's what was happening until I was 
basically complaining to my husband that I thought it was so weird that I was a bystander. And he was like, welcome to my life. And so I just thought, wow, I didn't know that that's how you felt the whole time. But he never, he didn't seem to mind it. But it's like, you know, no matter what was happening, he was always the one that was just standing there. And, you know, it was just, it's really interesting to be experiencing this 100% with him in the same way and then giving me a better understanding of how he's experienced so much of the journey as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now can you kind of paint a picture for us of what you anticipate to happen after the birth? Like is there a separate plan for that? Like does the surrogate give you breast milk? You know, like is there any bonding yeah, paint a picture for us. Yeah. So with that, um, I, a lot of it is, I mean, neither of us have ever been through this before her or I, and so it'll all be a little new. Um, but basically the expectation is that when the baby's born, we would like, I would take him directly. And then I think that she would be taken into a separate recovery room with her husband, and then I would be taken into one with my husband so that we can bond with the baby. Um, I think some people do have ask the surrogate to pump. Um, I don't think that that's going to be possible with us. And I think I started, I tried to do induced lactation, which is where I tried to make breast milk but it did not go well for me. And so we've just decided at this point that we're going to do formula. And so we don't want to overcomplicate everything. And we've kind of looked at all our options and talked to our pediatrician and everything. So on that route, we'll just be giving him formula from the very beginning. Um, but in terms of our relationship with the surrogate, I think from the very beginning, we've just kind of talked to her and her husband about just how we're just going to play it by ear because nobody really knows exactly how they're going to feel right after. I think that we will definitely stay in touch at a very minimum of, you know, cards and like updates of how the family is. Cause I know they like to see the baby growing up and we like to see how they're doing. And so I think at the very bare minimum, that would be a relationship. But I also know that for her, I think she's getting to the point where she's really ready to just be back with her family and be in her own her own world completely with her kids. And so I totally understand that as well. And so I think, again, it's just playing it by ear because we don't know exactly how everyone will feel after the birth. Um, but that's kind of the plan for now. I have never heard of induced yeah. lactation. Yeah, I hadn't until I started this process. <laughs> Can you speak to that for a second? Yeah. So basically induced lactation is where you are inducing lactation. So you are trying to um, breastfeed when you aren't the one that gave birth. So the people that it's recommended for are people having children through surrogacy or adoption because you're not the one actually giving birth to the child. Um, so basically you, in the long version or in the extended version of how you induce it is that you would take birth control, ironically, um, and another medication to stimulate um, the milk production. And then a about eight to 10 weeks before the birth, you're supposed to start 
pumping and trying to get milk. Um, but you're pumping when there is no milk yet. So not, it is extremely painful. (laughs) And I think that it really works for some people. I think that some people get more than others. It's not guaranteed to work. I was getting basically nothing and I just got, it was just way too much. And I was just in pain and frustrated with it. And we got to the point where I didn't want to spend all of the time leading up to the baby trying to make milk. And then I didn't want to spend all of my energy when he was here on trying to make milk. And I just wanted to spend the energy on him and our older son. And so for us, it was just the decision of, we don't want to spend all of the time and energy on just this. Um, But I think for some people, they fall into a rhythm where it does work for them. And so I think it's just, again, like with so much of this, it's a personal preference and figuring out what's best for everybody all around. Yes. Wow. You're blowing my mind. (laughs) I'm learning so much. I'm learning so much. This is fabulous. Um, Anything you wish you knew before starting all of this? Um, I think overall, I, I just think knowing that it's an emotionally tolling journey, you know, it's just, there's a lot, um, like once you're expecting via surrogacy, you don't, you don't want to have any negative emotions anymore. Cause you feel like you should just be happy cause it's happening. But then on another note, it's like, you know, you just, there's always both sides of emotions. So I think just allowing yourself to feel however you feel and just knowing that that's normal. Um, the main thing I also really didn't know is that I, I really thought it was just going to work the first time because I figured if it's a surrogate, then she's really, you know, she's had natural pregnancy. She's had no issues. So I didn't expect any failed transfers, even though they told us that it was possible. I just kind of refused to believe that failed transfers were possible. But the first time we did a transfer with her, it didn't work. And so we did end up doing two transfers, which thankfully it worked the second time. And we're extremely grateful for that. But I think just once you get to this point, you think, it has to work the first time because you think, you know, it seems like magic, but they did warn us that it can take two or three times sometimes. But I think, yeah, I just kind of refuse to believe that. (laughs) (laughs) You just kind of blocked that out. I mean, knowing that information, it, it, it doesn't give you a lot of, you know, enthusiasm to move forward. So you probably did the right thing to just block that out. I think that's what it was. I think we were like, well, we've had failed transfers. So the person having someone do it with us that has had natural pregnancies and gets pregnant super easily on their own, of course it has to work with them, you know? And it's just like, I mean, it shows transfers are never guaranteed. Um, but I think that overall, we were just very grateful that when the transfer didn't work, that she was willing to try again and we were willing to try again. And obviously, we're extremely happy that that happened because now we're having our baby. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's we just kept telling ourselves that like this this particular child was the one we were meant to have. So it all just kind of happened so that we could have him. Um, and I think obviously that's easier to say once you're having the baby, but yeah. So I think that's just knowing that, um, 
and then realizing that it could still work out after was nice and so grateful that it did. Do you have any advice for anybody that's maybe listening today and thinking about surrogacy? Um, I mean, overall, I would say that from the beginning, you just want to be able to emotionally, you want to be able to really process what you're moving into. Cause I, most people that do surrogacy, it's kind of the last stop, you know, it's not, they've tried everything else before they've moved on to surrogacy. And I know that's not the case for everyone, but that is the case for a lot of people. And so I think just like I had to really process emotionally that I was not going to carry a child again and really move through that. And I think that's why for my husband and I, we needed to try one more time on me before we were really ready. And, um, just having kind of a game plan of like knowing that you really are ready to do it. And then with that, giving yourself the time to do the research, to find the right agency or the right match for you to find the right lawyer. Cause it's, it's really overwhelming in the beginning because you've thought, Oh God, I've been, I've been waiting years for this child already. I don't want to wait longer, but then just, I think as hard as it is much easier said than done, just having the patience to kind of move through it in the time that it takes, because you just, it's not going to necessarily go at your speed. And there's a lot of things where even when you match, you hurry up, but then you have to wait for her cycle for her to go to the doctor. And then you have to wait for all the forms to get done. And then you have to wait for the doctors to have an opening to see her, you know? So there's a lot of things out of your control. So yeah, just kind of processing that as well. Do you um, have any, like, I just imagine, you know, like pregnancy itself, there is so, like, I was telling my friend the other day, I was like, all I can do is not smoke and drink. That's all I can do. Like, that's all I feel I can do. Yeah. And I just, it just seems like you really have to surrender in this situation. Like, what is it like just giving up complete control? Yeah, I think that's something that was definitely one of the biggest discussions that my husband and I had before we decided to go move on with surrogacy. Because at the end of the day, we knew that that was our best chance for another healthy child. And that's really what pushed us to go through with it. But the lack of control is huge. And infertility, there's already such a huge lack of control. And I think having experienced a lot of lack of control with our infertility journey up to this point kind of eased us into it, if that makes sense. Like before we started our trying to have kids, we had full control over our lives. And then once we started trying to have kids, we slowly lost more and more control as we started to try to build our family because we couldn't control how the outcomes of the fertility was going to go. You know, none of it is in our control. And so I think we were kind of frustrated by that. But then surrogacy adds another level to that because now you don't have control over the pregnancy. Like you don't control the, you know, what she eats and what, you know, where she goes. And there's all these things that are completely out of your control. And for me, like working with an agency really helped because 
she sees a ther- she goes to group therapy every month. She sees a nutritionist. You know, there's like checks and then making her feel more comfortable and making us for- feel more comfortable. So I think that aspect really helps with the lack of control. Um, but also, I honestly, there's just certain things that I just can't, I choose not to think about a lot because I can't, I know that I can't know everything and I know that I can't control it. And so I feel like if I've learned anything through this journey, it's that I do not want to waste my energy stressing about something that I have absolutely no control over. And that took a lot of accepting it and talking through it with my husband. You know, we've had to talk through everything, but I think just really focusing on the positive aspects and focusing on the fact that we're finally having a child and we're so grateful that it finally is happening and not focusing on any of the lack of control aspects is kind of where we've come to with this. So, yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's so inspiring, though. You know, like, what? what's the point of knowing everything? What's the point of knowing the brand of prenatals that she's taking? Yeah, you I know? mean, that part, like, I just have to trust that I mean, she wanted to do this for another family and the surrogacy agency is very careful with how they select the women that are their surrogates. And I think at the end of the day, from the first time we met her, we felt like we could trust her. And so when you have that trust and you have that understanding and you know that she is trying everything she can to have the healthiest baby possible for us, you just kind of have to trust that they're doing everything that they can for you. And that, you know, because I mean, it's not, sometimes I worry about it and it's absolutely not something that I'm always just, there's absolutely things I think about, but I think I just actively try not to worry about those things because, and like when my husband and I talk about it, we really talk about it in a very positive way of how excited we are for the baby. And, you know, and that's how we talk with our friends and family and everything, just because, being able to focus on something good is just, we've been waiting so long to have that good thing to focus on and have that baby. And so it's nice to finally have a positive and a light, you know? Absolutely. What makes your blood boil about infertility? Um, so overall, I think I get incredibly frustrated when people don't know what to say to someone going through infertility and loss. And I do really give people the benefit of the doubt. And I try to, because I know that when whatever people say in response or do, usually they're coming from a good place and they're well-intentioned. But I just feel like this is spoken about a lot in the infertility community where there's just certain things that get repeated again and again and again, like, you know, anything that starts with just or anything that starts with at least, or, you know, there's all these things that people are, oh, you know, well, why don't you just try again? Or there's just all these offhand comments that I think that sometimes I just hope that people start to really listen and hear what they need. And this actually bothers me so much that I decided to write a book about it. Um, And so I, I was trying to find something that existed on it and I just couldn't. And so I wanted to do it myself. Um, but the book is actually coming out in a few weeks. Um, and it's actually called how to help friends and family through infertility. 
And so it's aimed at people who want to offer support, but don't know how. And there's so, I feel like there's a lot of support and books out there for the people going through infertility themselves. But sometimes when people are the support system, they just, they really don't know what to do. They don't know what to say. They feel like they're in the dark and they don't want to do the wrong thing. And it can feel impossible to know what to say and how to act if you haven't experienced something yourself. And so I feel like because I'm coming from the perspective of someone who has experienced it and is experiencing it, I'm hoping that I can help people know better how to offer that support. Wow. Congratulations on a massive achievement like that. Thank you. I am very excited about it. I, I've been working on it for a while. It's I've been thinking about it for a, a long time and just kind of jotting down notes, but then it kind of became my COVID project because I was at home. And so it just kind of became something that I really focused in on doing more, being at home. Um, it's so, going to help so many people. Thank you. I really hope it does. That's why I did it. I really genuinely hope it does. Because people do want to, people do want to be helpful. Yeah. Like that, that's the thing that I do believe is that people genuinely want to say the right thing, you know? Yeah. And I, I agree. And, and we've just been so um, conditioned to say the wrong thing. You know, I just, it really, or, or say things that yeah. are just so unhelpful that um, the person doesn't need to, that doesn't help the person's situation. Right. And that's kind of, I think that's part of why I wrote it and part of the things that I included in it. I think that there's some phrases and some things that people say that they do not realize are hurtful. They think that they are helping and they think that they are giving good advice or good suggestions. And I totally understand why they think that it sounds good, but then giving them the perspective of, but this is actually how it comes off. And, you know, saying things to people like, oh, well, why don't you just try again? Or, you know, any of those comments or even gen generally, generally like offering advice to someone who definitely has already looked into all the options themselves. Like we don't really, we're not really looking for the advice. It's, I think sometimes people feel like to support someone, they need to give advice or give suggestions when really we just usually want to know that they're, they're there for us. And so I think the the book overall just covers, you know, ideas of what not to say, how to say things differently, you know, things that are triggering. Um, I also have a, a large section at the back of it that talks about um, the nitty gritty of infertility and just about, you know, what different diagnoses there are and what the possible outcomes of the treatments are and just different things like that so that they don't have to, friends and family don't necessarily have to ask their loved ones for all that information and they can find it somewhere else themselves. Cause I know that when you're going through infertility, you don't really want to repeat things over and over again when you're dealing with it in your life all the time anyway. So that's why I just hope that people can gain a better understanding about infertility as a whole. And then also just how to support people. I love that. I love that because I think it's hard to become everybody's educator about it, yeah. you know, and exactly. that was one thing that really like exhausted me 
with talking to my family, especially, like we're clearly speaking with a different vocabulary here mm-hmm. when we're talking about infertility and they could not keep up. They were just like, what? what, what yeah. What's a baseline? Yeah. I don't know a baseline, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, and that's it. And I think that also it's like sometimes you want to talk about it and then sometimes you just don't want to talk about it because it's all you're talking about all the time. And I mean, we got to the point where we're like, can we please talk about something else for a while? You know, just like talk about, you know, I remember I went to last fall after we had had our second miscarriage, I went to visit my grandma in New York and none of my New York family, my dad's side of the family knew really anything about what we had been going through or what we had experienced. And I sat at a kitchen table with them and had normal conversations and we didn't talk about infertility at all. And it was just so refreshing to be around a group of people that weren't asking me any questions. And so I think that's kind of why I wanted to write it too, just to kind of help people steer the conversation into other things sometimes, because that's really not what people want to talk about. And some people don't feel comfortable talking about it at all, which is perfectly okay. And so, but then the family member then gets the information they need to know more and to feel they can offer support without kind of bothering the person that's going through it. Oh, I love it. I'm going to have to buy 20 copies. <laughs> I'm going to, that's what everybody's getting for Christmas. Wonderful. Yeah. See, that's actually why I'm coming out with it now is because I figured like, the holidays are so hard for people. And so I wanted to come out with it right before Thanksgiving. And even though the holidays are going to look different this year, you still have to answer those questions around the holidays. And so to give people the opportunity to learn how to offer support when support is strongly needed, when it's a really hard time of year for people, um, is why I also wanted to release it now. Love it. Well, how can people buy the book, find you, and connect with you? Yes. So um, the best way to find and connect with me is definitely through Instagram, um, the When Everybody Matters. And I answer all the direct messages that I get I as soon as I can. I can't always get to them all right away, but I do respond to everyone. I really like, I love connecting with people there individually as well. Um, email is also a really great way to connect with me. That link is also on my Instagram page. Um, I also have a website for more resources and information just in general. Um, and that is easily clickable through my Instagram as well. I think everything kind of home base is at Instagram. Um, and then for my book, I am going to be releasing it in ebook format and printed format definitely on Amazon and hopefully a few other places, um, but mainly on Amazon. And the the release date is set for November 17th. And so I will be, um, so it is available and it can come out um, just going to Amazon. I have a link, I'll have a link for it in my, in my Instagram bio as well. Like I said, everything is kind of a home base there. Got it. So yeah, so there's a, there's a link to it in, on Amazon or on, uh, Instagram as well, but also it's really easily searchable. I think if you search my name on Amazon, it comes up. So wonderful. Yeah. Alex, this has been so fabulous. I learned so much. 
Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciated doing this with you and I love talking to you about it. So thank you. Yeah, we'll be in touch. Go get Alex's book. Yes, it's, thank um, you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go to Amazon, how to, search my name. <laughs> yes. And the title is How to Help Friends and Family Going Through Infertility. Correct. And loss. Got it. Yeah, just going through infertility. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much, Alex. We'll Thank be in touch. You. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bums, and see you next week. 